Well, we have longed to be in the house of the Lord this morning. We've longed to be in His presence. We've done so in worship and song. We have worshiped in giving, and we continue to stay in His presence as we worship in our time in the Word. Listen to the Word of the Lord this morning. This is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Well then, my brothers and sisters, you are God's holy ones, and you share the call from heaven. So think carefully about Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession of faith, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. He deserves much more glory than Moses, you see, just as one who builds a house deserves more glory than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the one who builds all things is God. And Moses was faithful as a servant in all his house, thereby bearing witness to the things that were yet to be spoken of. But Jesus, the Messiah, is over God's house as a son. What is that house? It's us. Those of us who hold on tightly to the free delight and confidence of our hope. That is the word of the Lord this morning. And if I say all God's people said, you guys know to respond, amen. Amen. Good. So be it. I was forced to take a debate section in high school, my AP English class. And uh, I don't know if it's too strong a word to say that I hated it. Even to this day, I'm a slow processor. I'm not the quickest person on the draw. I like to, when I'm talking with someone, have the opportunity to go home and let it simmer. You know, let it, let it kind of reflect overnight, if not longer. And then I can come back with my best and most thoughtful answer. Apparently, I was the same back in high school. So taking this debate section in AP English was hard for me. We were forced to stand up in front of the class, which was something else I didn't like. I don't like being in front of people. Some things haven't changed. I was forced to stand in front of the class, face my opponent, and debate with them over whatever topic we had prepared. Now, if my memory serves me correct, when learning the art of debate, we weren't supposed to start with our our best, our strongest arguments first. We were supposed to kind of hold off on those. Break out the big guns later. Again, if my memory serves me correctly, our strongest points were supposed to come up around the the time, maybe our third argument. So the third argument was supposed to be the the point that they could not refute. It should be the dagger, the, the point to end all points of the debate. Maybe I'm making this part up, maybe I don't even remember it, but if I remember correctly, it was at around the third point where if you were going to elevate your voice, this was the time to do it. Okay, This is where you'd say, I see where you're coming from in your first two points, but let me tell you this, and let me prove to you and the class why I'm right. Not only, well, yeah, you see, you're loving it, that's how it's supposed to go, right? Not only was it the elevated voice, but it was the the word but. That was like the signal. It was supposed to seal the deal. But let me tell you this. Now, I think this understanding of debate, for me, shaped my initial reading of our text today. 
If you haven't done so, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. As you're turning there, let me tell you that a lot of commentators view the first couple of chapters in Hebrews as as the author kind of entering into this debate, or, or bare minimum entering into this argument where he is stating his case. He is stating the points that he really wants to make. And a lot of those commentators say it starts with the author saying, Jesus is greater than the, the prophets. That's point one. Then he moves to the second point. Jesus is greater than the angels. And we looked at that last week. That's his second point. And then we get to the third point. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. That's the, the third, the, the, the big driving home. The, the, uh, that's the massive point. Listen to it. Chapter 3, verse 1 to the beginning of verse 3. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he, enter, when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses. So we got point one, we got point two, and then today we get to point three. Did you see the but? There's that word, beginning of verse three. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses. Similar to last week's, uh, duh, James, we know that Jesus is greater than angels. Right? For us, this point may seem a little bit anticlimactic. Even, especially if we're sticking to our, you know, my understanding of debate, where your third point just is unrefutable. I would have thought that the author would have said, Jesus is greater than all the other Greek gods combined. Or Jesus is greater than all the gods of the Medes and the Persians, the Romans, and all the other Gentile nations combined. Or or Jesus is, is greater than all the gods of the universe combined. That would have been a good third point. But instead we get Jesus is greater than Moses. A man. Seems kind of anticlimactic for us, but it wasn't for the original listeners. See, for the original audience, this was climactic. Moses was revered. He was held in high esteem. He wasn't just some... Remember that one guy who did something pretty exciting a few years back? What was his name? He wasn't that. He was Moses. God had spoken to him face to face. God had given him the law. Now one commentator says that the greatest thing in all the world to the Jew was the law. Moses and the law were seen as the same thing. God had given Moses the law, thus the law and Moses were synonymous. So for the author to say Jesus was greater than Moses... What he was saying is Jesus is greater than the things you hold in the highest of esteem. That's a big third point. And that would have hit the listeners right between the eyes. Now, I told you that my history with debate shaped and influenced my reading of this text, right? You know, this third point was supposed to be the dagger that was driven home. Now, it was supposed to be the point to end all points. And perhaps I even read into the text that there was a gleam in the author's eye of, I'm going to win this debate and I'm going to win it with this point. And I think that's how I first read the text. But, there's that word. But, I think I was originally reading it wrong. 
At least after a week of study, I feel like I was putting my own feelings into the author's words. And I think in looking at it, he was far from driving home a dagger with this third point. I realized this when I was looking at the original Greek. There is no but in the original language. In fact, most of your translations won't have it either. That was just in the New Living. As I studied and looked at different passages, I did a little backpedaling. Ultimately, the author is making the point that Jesus is greater than Moses. He is making that, but he's not doing it in a belligerent way. He's not doing it in a way that would have turned the listener's ears off. You ever seen that happen? It it would be like if I stood up here and started trashing Billy Graham, Chuck Swindoll, and and John Wesley. If I started just bad-mouthing them, you guys would stop listening. And it wouldn't matter how good whatever I said later was, you wouldn't want to hear it because of how I talked about these people who you revere in the Christian faith. It would have done more damage than good, right? Yeah. That's how the author of Hebrews, he knew that. And that's why he took the approach that he did. We're in verse 2. The author says, For Jesus was faithful to God, who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. Do you see the care in that verse? I mean, the author doesn't elevate Jesus and then antagonistically belittle Moses. He claims Jesus as faithful to God, which he was, just as Moses was faithful to God with his entire house. I mean, how's that for a phrase? This was a direct quote from the law that the listeners would have had in such high esteem. Listen to it. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6 and following. And God said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak to him face to face, clearly, not in riddles. He sees the Lord as he is. From the law, it says, Moses is faithful in all my house, God's house. By house, the Lord was talking about the people, the Israelite people. God's temple hadn't been built yet. First Free Methodist Church hadn't been built yet. It was built the next year. He wasn't talking about the traveling tabernacle either. The author of Hebrews was citing this Old Testament source saying, Moses was faithful with all God's people. God trusted Moses with his people, all his house. We're going to return to this idea of God's house a little bit later. The second half of verse 3 says, Just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. You see his argument beginning to form. He is going to say Jesus is greater than Moses, but he's not throwing Moses under a bus. He's keeping a high view of Moses. This high view continues in verse 5. It says, Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. He was faithful in God's house as a servant. Being called a servant, being called a slave today may have some negative connotations. But to be called the Lord's servant anytime is a good thing. 
From the very beginning, Moses was called that. Exodus chapter 14, verse 31. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The word used here in Exodus for servant is used over 800 times in the Old Testament. It means, I mean, quite simply, a slave. So when you picture a slave, picture a servant, that's what it means. But the author of Hebrews didn't use this word. When we jump to the New Testament, there are two words commonly used for servant. The first is doulos. It properly means somebody who belongs to somebody else. Ironically, in the New Testament, this term is used with the highest of dignity. Namely, of of believers willing to live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers. That's doulos. That was not the word the author of Hebrews used. Second most commonly commonly used word for a servant or slave in the New Testament is diakonos. Now, this is cool. It literally means to thoroughly raise up dust by moving in a hurry. As to do ministry in such a manner. It means to hasten, to pursue service. This word is often used in the New Testament as the Lord inspiring his servants to carry out his plan for their people. Diakonos, that's where we get the word deacon, somebody serving God's people. Diakonos, this was not the word that the author of Hebrews used in our text today either. Doulos, no. Diakonos? No. The author, though, says Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. And it's not the word used over 800 times in the Old Testament. The word he uses for servant is used only once in the entire New Testament. It's used only here. And this word is therapon. Therapon. The word means an attendant. A minister giving willing service. It refers to somebody faithfully attending, somebody volunteering to serve somebody else, like a a friend serving in a, a tender or noble way. Moses, in our text today, is called a therapon of the house, of the people of God. I mean, what a beautiful picture. Willingly serving, tenderly serving, like a friend. This is how Moses served the people of God, all the people of God. That's beautiful. Now, I read this definition of therapon, and I pictured Dr. Dean. I'm not trying to elevate one person over another in here, but we all know that Dr. Dean willingly serves the seniors in this this church, willingly serves the entire church. I mean, just gives himself like a friend would to everyone else. Uh, I may stop calling you Dr. Dean and start calling you therapon Dean. That has a nice ring to it, huh? It's a mouthful, though. Picture this for our purposes today. How Dr. Dean cares for the, you know, the 80 to 100 people in here. That's how the Bible is saying that Moses cared for the 2 million Israelites. Willingly serving. Wow. All of God's house. Back to verse 5. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. 
And his work was an illustration of the truths God would reveal later. His faithful service was an illustration of the truths that God would reveal later. Isn't it so much easier to listen to someone who serves like this? Who willingly gives in this manner? I mean, isn't it easier in the future to, to, to listen to them if they have proven that by serving that way in the past? Does that make sense? I mean, if, if someone were to bullhorn their message to me, yelling it at my face, arguing it with me in, in an aggressive, obnoxious way, would I want to listen to them in the future? No. Would you? More than likely not. No. So for Moses to serve the way he did in the Old Testament, it was really paving the way for God's message, God's message in Jesus Christ to be told and listened to. For Moses to serve in a, in a therapon-type way was paving the way for the message of Jesus Christ to be told and listened to. To that I say, well done, Moses. And I say, well done, author of Hebrews. What a great picture of Moses. And we're talking this morning about Jesus being greater than Moses. And I'm going to show you that here in just a moment. But I want to show you first that the author didn't bash Moses. He kept the original audience's ears. If anything, he perked their ears up and said, this guy is great. Let me tell you of someone who's greater. He spoke of Moses lovingly. All the while showing that Jesus is still greater than him. And here's where we get to that. The author does this. He proves Jesus' greaterness by calling Jesus a few different names. Verse 1 in chapter 3. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger or God's apostle. My translation says messenger. This is easily readable, and it makes sense for us in today's language, but the Greek word is, that's used there is apostolon. It could be translated messenger, but it sounds a lot like the word apostle. Normally, when we hear this word, we think of the 12 men that Jesus called, that he summoned to walk the roads of Galilee with him. We think of Peter, James, and John, or, or we think of Philip, Bartholomew, Andrew. We think of apostles of Jesus. We don't typically think of Jesus as an apostle. I mean, it's not like he was an apostle of himself. When we look at what this word means, when we recognize that the author of Hebrews never calls anybody else an apostle except for Jesus we're reminded that the author understands the weight that this word carries. This word apostle means a person who is commissioned by another person to represent him in some way. Commissioned by another person to represent him in some way. Thus, I mean, that the 12 apostles of Jesus were later commissioned to represent Jesus. So think about this, okay? Jesus was sent out by the Father to represent the Father. When the word is used in this manner, it really pushes the, the focus back on the authority of the sender. Are you tracking with me? Jesus, Jesus, or the author is saying that Jesus was commissioned by the Father, sent out to us to represent the Father and to point back to the Father's authority. John 20, 21, Jesus says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We could say he was saying, As the Father has apostled me, so I am apostling you. Go forth, 
point back to the Father with the intention of representing the Father. Yes, Moses was called out by a burning bush. Moses was a child of destiny floating in the Nile River in his basket. And Moses served the people of God faithfully. Scripture tells us that. But Jesus was sent out by the Father. From the Father's presence to us. He was the ultimate apostle. That's the first name that the author of Hebrews calls Jesus in pointing to his greaterness than Moses. The second name Jesus is called is high priest. Still in verse 1. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. If you remember in the last couple of weeks, I've skimmed over this idea of high priest. Uh, I've skipped uh, really unpacking it. I'm going to do that again this morning because we're going to talk about it over a couple of weeks. Uh, But what I want to show you this morning is that the author calls Jesus this name to really show his audience that Jesus is greater than Moses. So simple question, okay? Not a trick question. Simple question. Was Moses a high priest of Israel? No. Thank you. Someone was bold enough to answer out loud. Okay? No, he wasn't. Aaron was, right? His brother. You can read about it in Exodus 28. Uh, there's several other passages that show that. Leviticus chapter 17, 16, verse 32. It says, In the future generations, a purification ceremony will be performed by the priest who has been anointed and ordained to serve as high priest in the place of his ancestor Aaron. Aaron was the high priest of Israel. Now, we could have just flipped the page in in Hebrews to make that same point. Chapter 5, verse 4. It says, And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. And it keeps going. It says, That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God. Moses was not high priest of the people God entrusted to him. Jesus was, Jesus is, high priest chosen by God. The Latin word for a priest is pontifex. It means bridge builder. So the high priest is the person who builds the bridge between man and God. And to do that, the high priest must know two things. He must know man and he must know God. He must be able to speak to God for men and speak to men for God. Jesus did that. Jesus does that. Jesus is high priest. Moses wasn't. It's not a knock against Moses. It's just the author showing us that Jesus is greater than Moses. Okay? Jesus is apostle. Jesus is high priest. And the final name the author calls Jesus in our text today is son. We talked about this in week one of our Hebrews series. What, what makes it real powerful here, though, is the placement of where he calls Jesus' son in comparison to what he calls Moses. We've looked at verse 5. The beginning of it says, Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. Verse 6 says, but Christ as the son is in charge of God's entire house. Moses as Therapon, servant. Christ As son, heir to all of it, sharing the likeness of the heavenly father, sharing the the same nature of the father. As son, Jesus is in charge of, he's over all of God's house. Yes, Moses cared for lovingly all of God's house, but Jesus is in charge of it. 
Remember what God's house is? It's us. It's God's people. So servant versus son. Again, simple question, which is greater? Servant or son? Son. Good. God said of Jesus, this is my dearly beloved son of whom I'm well pleased. The son is greater. And he's greater because he's in charge of all of the church. All of God's house. Let's keep going and see what Hebrews says about the church. We're in verse 6. But Christ as son is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house. If we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. We are God's house. Peter wrote something similar. Chapter 2 verse Five of his first book. You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. I want to bring this home for us. We've looked at how the author uh, talks about Moses. Okay, we, We've looked at how he showed Jesus is greater than Moses. And now I want to show us how the author is speaking to us as God's house and, and what our responsibility is as such. We'll start in verse 1. It says, and so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God. The Greek says, and so, holy ones. Prior to Jesus, this term was only used, solely used, of the Jewish people. They were God's holy ones. And now, the author is saying, you are God's holy ones. And as holy ones, you have a calling to heaven. Still in verse 1. So holy ones, as partners who are called to heaven. My translation says to heaven. If we left it at that, we may think that our calling is to a place we go after we die. You know, the great by and by. That's a good, uh, fine thought to have. But again, that's just how my translation reads. Most of, of your translations don't have to heaven. A lot of them have uh, a heavenly calling. Now this could mean either a calling to heaven or a calling from heaven. And if it means our calling from heaven, we've got a job to do. That job starts with our confession. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, or holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. We hear the term confession, and we may be tempted to think about somebody telling all the wrongs that they have done. And we talk about confessing our sins to Christ. Maybe we think of, of, of a jail cell confession. In our text today, confession is still owning up to something. But it's owning up to our allegiance with Jesus. It's a positive thing. It's owning up to the truths he taught that we believe. It's owning up to the fact that we are Christ's message. In Jesus' day, a confession like this was dangerous. It was presented as a threat to the powers that be, uh, to the systems they thought that, they con- that controlled everything. These new believers, they were making a confession that was risky. We're called still to do the same thing. To have this common affirmation of faith, this collective agreement of of what God deems as right and wrong, uh, the proclamation that Jesus is greater 
And honestly, if we proclaim this as we should, it is still risky. God's holy ones making a shared confession as a result of a call from heaven. That's what being part of God's house entails. So what's our responsibility with it? What's our next steps? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Now, if you've been here all five weeks of the series, you're probably thinking, Pastor, come on, you've said that at the end of each sermon. Every week, are you seriously saying it again? Yes, I am. I am, and here's why. The Greek word for consider is katanoen. One commentary writes this. He says, now this word does not simply mean to look at or to notice a thing. Anyone can look at a thing or notice it without any sense really seeing it. The word means to fix the attention on something in such a way that the inner meaning of the thing, the lesson that that thing is designed to teach may be learned. In Luke chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus said, consider the ravens. He wasn't saying, look at their pretty black feathers. Look at their, their tweet. Look at the food that they eat. Jesus was saying, look at the ravens and understand and learn the lesson that God is seeking to teach you through them. Katanoen the ravens. Katanoen Jesus. The writer continues, if we are ever to learn the Christian truth, a lackluster, disinterested, detached glance is never enough. There must be a concentrated gaze. And I love how he words this. There must be a concentrated gaze in which we gird up the loins of our mind in a determined effort to see what Jesus is for us. When we do this, when we do this, when we consider Jesus in this manner, what happens? The end of verse 6 tells us, if we keep our courage, we will keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. When we consider Jesus, when we get to know in Jesus, we cannot help but have courage. Confident hope, rejoicing in our hope, boasting in our hope, in the hope we have in Jesus Christ. When we have this, there is no room for, no ability to be, no possible way that we can just be Sunday morning Christians. There is no possible way to remain unchanged, apathetic, content. If we truly consider Jesus in this manner, it will change us. We won't be wishy-washy. We, we won't be cultural Christians. Either we believe in the hope we have in Jesus because we have gazed into his face and sought the lessons that he is trying to teach us, or we don't. It's as simple as that. Either we believe the hope we have in Jesus because we have gazed into his face and longed for him. and We've learned the, the lesson that he wants to teach us. Or we don't. This is not a call for arrogance and pride. It's a call for cheerful and confident celebration of the gospel that is Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus. The love of Jesus. It's a reminder for all of us, especially those who have called themselves part of God's house for a long time. It's a reminder for us to look deeply into the face of Jesus. I needed this reminder this week. I needed this reminder this morning. 
Yes, our text is saying Jesus is greater than Moses. And maybe, for me, this isn't the strongest of third points in a debate, but when I looked at what the author of Hebrews was describing, Jesus as son, as apostle, as high priest, and when I looked at what the author was challenging me with as part of God's house, as one who was called to and from heaven, as one who must have a confident, bold hope, I realized that the author did win the debate. At least for me. Funny enough, he did it on the third point. His first point, Moses was, was pretty good. He faithfully served Jesus. His second point, Jesus is greater than Moses. And his third point, consider Jesus. Think deeply about this Jesus. Gaze into his face to figure out what it is he has to teach you. And learn that lesson. Would you consider Jesus with me this week? I'm watching. I'm waiting to see what happens as I do that. And I pray the same for you guys. Consider Jesus. He's greater than Moses. And he's worth considering. Let's pray. God, in a very real way, this, this week was a kick in the teeth for me. It was a reminder that even though I've followed Christ for 30 plus years, I still have to take the time to sit and look into the face of Jesus, to consider Jesus and to look for the lesson that he is trying to teach me. God, I thank you that Jesus is greater than Moses. I thank you that he's greater than the, the angels. I thank you that he's greater than the prophets. I thank you that he is just plain great. I thank you that out of that greatness, he loves me. And he loves us. Thank you that we can claim to be God's house. I thank you that Jesus is in charge of us. And I thank you that he will care for us in that Theropon type way that, that the text calls Moses. Jesus, I ask that as I, as I consider Jesus, as I consider you this week, that you would meet me. I ask that as our body considers Jesus this week, that you would meet with them, not for our glory, but for yours. This is about you, not us. And I thank you that we get to be a part in it. Along in your presence, God not just this morning, but all the time. May I do that by considering you. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.